Oh, I was I was going to say my favorite feature of LinkedIn is that you can endorse people for skills. And the beautiful part of that is that um, the endorsement, it's public before they can approve it. So you can endorse people for horse breeding skills. You can endorse people for, you know, really ability to chop wood, anything you want. Yeah, no one checks their LinkedIn, so it could be up for weeks before they know. Man, I hope the listeners find this out and endorse us all for all the things we claim to be. Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, brand ambassador for Jellycomb Keyboards and Mice. I'm your main host above Sean Hartman, and I am a migraine aura interpretive specialist. And your name is Jeremy Ruggles? Oh, yeah, my name's Jeremy Ruggles. <laughs> <laughs> well, my name is Peter Cook, the host with the most, and I am 2021's leading conspiracy theorist on the link between 21 Jump Street, 21 Grams, and 21 Pilots. I'm James Duke. I am not a host. I am a smoking cessation hypnotist and notary public. And Ooh. the designer of this podcast's logo. That's right. That's one of the big reasons I tune in every week is just so I can see my own artwork light up on my phone screen. <laughs> well, I think that's why most people tune in for your artwork. I'm a very vain person. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a work to be proud of, James, and we're proud to have you on board with tonight's episode, today's episode, whatever time our dear listeners are playing this episode. What record are we going to talk about? We're going to talk about a little treasure that I acquired in high school at a thrift store this today we're going to listen to some selections from a record called airport love theme by mr vincent bell okay do you want to set the scene for everyone before we drop the needle sure airport love theme i'm looking at the cover here and it's a dreamy melodramatic shot of a, a beautiful brunette and she's at an airport there's a plane taking off just behind her and the sun is shining and uh there's an air of mystery there's an air of sadness that's all I knew about this record when I picked it up. All right. Well, let's just go ahead and experience it. What track are we going to start with? Let's start with track one, side one, airport love theme. Beautiful. The title track. <laughs> Thank you. 
please hold for the next available podcaster or co-host. Remember, this podcast may be recorded for quality purposes. <laughs> Anybody else get uh, like call waiting vibes off that track or uh yeah especially our listeners won't hear this but through the zencaster it definitely sounded like i was on hold <laughs> but uh, weird world but you know sometimes i'm on hold for so long that i really i don't know if i come to like the song that i'm listening to even though i'm usually you know either uh like despondent or fired up at the time or if it almost <laughs> yeah. becomes like a uh stock home syndrome <laughs> type thing <laughs> i'm just trying to imagine peter like angrily confronting a business representative on the telephone <laughs> yeah that's not really in my nature <laughs> he has to work really hard to psych himself up there's a lot of cognitive dissonance there kind of like this music like there's you know some hold music vibes but it's very unsettling through that lens as well though yeah it's another one of those it's another one of those records where it's easy to pass it off as like unimportant background music but when you really pay attention there's a lot of layers here there's a lot of depth emotionally tone wise instrumentation all of that this i've been playing this record a bunch and i gotta say it just keeps unfolding the more the more i play it yeah, I I've had a similar experience when I first picked it up as well. You know, I and I love that right from the jump, you know that you're stepping into something kind of strange. Vinny comes in really hot with his signature underwater effect and it is dialed all the way up right with the first few notes. Right? So we've got this weird sound. It sounds like he's playing underwater, right? And uh it's it's funny. It's I laughed out loud the first time I listened to this record. It struck me as very funny. I was listening to it very loud on my parents' home stereo. And when that sound came on, it just cracked me up. I wasn't expecting it. <laughs> it is a much more uh, moist tone than you would normally hear. Then that crazy fuzzed out guitar comes in too over it. And that's also like just wacky for the sounds going on around it. What year is this record? Did we say? This was released in 1970. So um, it was released to coincide and ride the hype for uh, the, the film Airport. So it's the love theme from the movie Airport. This record actually, it sold over a million copies. It was awarded a, a gold record. The composition itself won a Grammy, although Vincent Bell's version didn't, uh, didn't pick up any awards. But it was a big hit. And um, Bell was nominated for that award so it was it was probably his most prominent release with his own name on it yeah because he's basically known as kind of an innovator and a session player to my understanding he was on our uh watertown frank sinatra album just a few episodes back yeah absolutely he's most well known for being a session player and for his underwater signature effect he appeared on a startling number of records that charted very high. The thing that I was very surprised to learn uh, many years, when I acquired this record, it was before I had internet access at my parents' house when I was in high school. So I didn't really know anything about Vincent Bell and ended up looking him up online just a few years ago and, and was surprised to discover, you know, he played on The Sounds of Silence, 
and you know hundreds, maybe thousands of other hit records, uh, both credited and uncredited over the years as a as a studio musician, leader of the pack. Wow. And wait, I don't know if I'm getting ahead of uh, ahead of you here. If I mention Twin Peaks. Yeah, absolutely. He was also well known for his extensive soundtrack work, including the Twin Peaks theme. Of course, very iconic. For those of you that are familiar with the theme, it starts off with those very prominent bass notes, which are played through the uh, tremolo pedal that's part of his water setup. So it's uh, that's also one thing that really brought this a new layer to this record for me. As I got older, I became a Twin Peaks fan. The that signature sound that carried through to his later work kind of retroactively gave this album a more mysterious glow to me upon revisiting it. Yeah. Uh, learning a little bit more about his sound and some of the records he played on, it made perfect sense to me why he got asked to be a part of the Twin Peaks soundtrack. I feel like a lot of, there's a lot of David Lynch material that has that kind of retro pop sound with just a little bit of weirdness underneath absolutely which is like the same kind of thing we said especially with this record it's it makes so much sense that you know he's basically making this like half psychedelic half easy listening lounge record and then that's the ex- exactly the aesthetic that was needed for the soundtrack to twin peaks and it's interesting that you mentioned that actually it ties directly in with the soundtrack work of angelo badalamenti of course a long time mm-hmm. collaborator with david lynch and um, they actually were born and grew up together in the same neighborhood in Brooklyn, big uh, old-fashioned Italian neighborhood. They went to school together, and uh, they famously have collaborated on each other's work throughout their careers. Actually, of course, the gold record for that David Lynch's uh, Twin Peaks theme as well was uh, Vincent Bell's second gold record for that kind of work alongside Angelo Badalamenti. Are you saying that Angelo Badalamenti and... Vincent Bell grew up together. Yes. Okay. Yeah, they were they grew up in a in a big Italian neighborhood in Brooklyn, and actually, it was really funny in doing research on Vincent Bell for this podcast. I learned that, or almost every interview that I saw, it was from an obituary or something. He passed away a few years ago. Almost everybody that collaborated with him mentioned that uh, the his him and his wife were very Italian, extremely into the large family gatherings and famously would send everyone home with very large portions of food. (laughs) This was cited by Angelo as well. Nice. It's a good legacy to have. (laughs) Absolutely. So the thing I love about this first track, of course, it's got that sound right out in front. But just like you said, Sean, there's a lot of other things that are going on as well underneath. And it's because Vincent Bell is really bringing all of his experience in studios working with all these other artists to bear on his own record for his own creative style. And so if you notice there, he's got some cool slapback echo on the drums. That really adds a lot for me. It's got a nice shuffle going. And then there's something cool that's going on behind all of the guitar lines as well, where there are choirs and there are, there's a string section and they're kind of swelling behind each melody line. Almost, uh, you know, I don't know if any of you have ever played with those kind of modern chorus effects pedals where you can simulate the sound of an orchestra behind your, behind your guitar. But it's, it's very similar to that effect. Interesting. And he, he was like a pioneer of guitar effects in general, right? Like there's a lot of stuff that he was either playing first inventing, or at least like mastering before it was even commonly available. Yeah, absolutely. He famously 
created one of the first prototypes for the wah pedal about 10 years before the first wah pedals were uh, officially commercially available. And in fact, before any real guitar effects pedals were available. So he was very comfortable experimenting with electronics and inventing his own unique guitar pedals. And he really endeared himself to many producers of the time in New York because of his unique approach and his unique effects. He has a lot of stories and interviews where he's talking about working on famous songs and how the producer was initially kind of hesitant to allow him to experiment. But once he really uh, proved what he could do and, and bring that interesting signature sound to the records that he was working on, they would always bring him back. And he was initially very liberal sharing his studio secrets, but I think he became a little bit cynical, especially with the wah pedal after seeing those become a part of the commercial market. Uh, he had never patented mm. any early work and he felt that it was it belonged to the community so seeing other people profit from it burnt him a little bit so he then kind of changed his position and the underwater sound effect that we hear on this first track and on all subsequent tracks on this record became a very closely guarded professional secret for him interesting yeah it's cool that he was able to become like an in-demand session player not only for his technical skill because he's a very proficient guitar player but just i'm sure it was extremely valuable for producers and songwriters to be able to use the guitar as a much more of a tonal coloring than you would normally get and especially in these kind of like orchestrated pop formats like this like you said with the the background vocals and strings and everything oftentimes the guitar was like a very minor background part of those kind of songwriting arrangements. Yeah, absolutely. And he really tried to bring his approach, not just to the guitar, but to other instruments as well. And uh, was known for being a tinkerer in the studio in general, really trying to innovate what was possible with recorded music and, and bringing some signature effects to very famous hit songs, especially his, his signature musical water droplets effect that we hear on this record. He was very, very proud of the effect. It was used famously on the song Midnight Cowboy, which is a top 40 hit. Again, a, a gold record for Vincent. It won a Grammy as well. And um, Was that from the soundtrack to Midnight Cowboy? Yes. Okay. He also played it on the Four Seasons Can't Take My Eyes Off of You and the Shangri-Las I Can Never Go Home Anymore. Just a couple of examples of that effect on some hit records. He was very, very proud that nobody was able to replicate his sound exactly. And the sound itself actually came from a collaboration between himself and Nate Daniel, who was the founder of Dan Electro Guitars and Effects. And they had a close working relationship and developed that sound together. Uh, Very funny on Vincent Bell's website. He says, the secret to his underwater sound is that he actually records underwater in a watertight recording studio, which I really appreciated. But um, <laughs> Next level. He, yeah, he worked with um, Nate Daniel, and what they ended up doing was they took the electromechanical reverb system that Dan Electro was using that was patented as part of their amplifier series, and he basically used the crystals and circuitry in those reverb pedals or in those reverb tanks as part of their amplifiers. And he hooked a bunch of them together and that it added dials. So he, he could control the individual tanks within the pedal. It was sort of a daisy chain that they built into one unit and then 
you know, pretended it was a lot more complex than it was. But just like you mentioned, Sean, it was a combination of being experimental with the actual equipment, but also dialing in the nuances of how to play that equipment in a musical way to create a cool effect. Definitely. You know what? You know what song I was positive he was on, and then it turned out he wasn't. The uh, Pet Sounds instrumental song, just called Pet Sounds. Oh. And there's that watery guitar. Yeah. And I was like, that's got to be him. And I look it up, and it's some other dude I've never heard of. That track definitely has this the vibe of this album to a degree. Yeah. I wouldn't write it off completely. Supposedly, he has more uncredited appearances than credited appearances, which is impressive because his credited appearances number in the thousands in terms of hit records. Oh, maybe it was him then. But yeah, absolutely. He had many um, imitators. And uh, one of the things he was most proud of late in his life was that his good friend, Les Paul, was never able to figure out his secret. It was only... (laughs) uh, it was only leaked in an interview with Nate Daniels' son, who was frankly a little offended that towards the end of Vincent Bell's life, Nate Daniels' son was very charitable in saying he must have developed some Alzheimer's because it sounds like he's taking credit for these effects without my father's influence and things like that. But he's still a good person. So it was, a, it was, a, it was said in a kind way, but basically it was you know, the son of the Dan Electro guy saying, hey, come on, give us a little credit over here for <laughs> writing these nice tributes to you. And, and uh, to be fair... Vincent Bell also collaborated with the Dan Electro Corporation to develop the electric sitar. The first electric sitar that was available on the market was one of his designs, as well as a a version of a traditional instrument called a bozuki mm-hmm. that they actually patented. It's called, called the Bellzuki, of course, named after Vincent himself. Oh, wow. And he, didn't he work with them on their first electric 12 string as well? Yes, absolutely. Nice. Yeah. That he, yeah, all of these, uh, you know, being an inventor and studio musician and band leader definitely reminded me a lot of Les Paul. So it would make sense that they considered themselves to be rivals. They were covering a lot of similar territory for sure. I would say that they considered themselves to be peers. Uh, Yeah. One common thing that I read about Vincent Bell was that he was mostly regarded in very good humor by everyone that knew him. There was a lot of really good jokes and, and anecdotes about recording experiences working with him. One of my favorites, he worked with Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention. And uh, he was in the session and he was the only musician in the room that was wearing a shirt. So he had to follow protocol and remove that. He made sure that he did that. But there's all kinds of stories <laughs> where he's you know, very accommodating to different types of situations. He recorded with Anthrax in the 80s. Wow. Um, so quite a a versatile career for a very versatile musician oh man is that the first time anthrax has come up on the podcast i think so oh man that's fine though i'm that's fine no no i think scott ian is a huge (laughs) fan of our podcast so i'm sure he's glad to get some respect that's fine too he's he can be a fan of us i just don't have to be a fan of his band Well, do we want to play another track at this juncture? You know, I would love that. I don't know how everybody else feels, but I would love that. I would also enjoy it. What are we hearing, James? Let's listen to the theme from The Damned. Sounds heavy. Oh, it's extremely heavy. I think I own a copy of this movie and I've never watched it. Guess I'm going to experience some of it tonight or today, whenever you're listening, dear listener.
You know what that song reminds me of a lot? And I anthrax? think it's probably the <laughs> other than anthrax. <laughs> it it reminds me of the theme music that the band wrote for their last waltz film oh because they they did all the concert footage and then they had that like mandolin theme song that they used for the titles and i think had it like one or two other points in there there's something about like the melodies and instrumentation that are just strangely similar to me that's interesting seems legit which like is, is interesting because i know that the band wrote that theme to be this like quintessential americana kind of thing like that was the the goal of the music it was supposed to be this inherently american sound which you know is funny because they're almost all canadians so i wonder what the uh intention of this song that vincent bell did what what was the the theme what was the setting i don't know if any of us have seen the movie the damned so (laughs) nazi germany (laughs) (laughs) well i i mean in terms of the audience for this record i was very amused when i looked up a full youtube video of the album to send to jeremy initially when i was pitching him the idea for this episode the comments on this full album are some of the most romantic i've ever seen in my life and in every language that you can imagine i really had a fun five minutes going into google translate and reading you know oh this is the most beautiful music of my life you know uh, i wish i was in italy smoking cigarettes with my first lover once again you know very flowery adorable stuff in the youtube comment section from all over the world oh that's great especially because the youtube comment section is usually one of the low points of the internet <laughs> yeah you when you find a safe one just stay there <laughs> james tell us about old Vinny, as his friends always called him right yeah so i told a little bit of his story but um he started playing in new york city as a teenager like i said earlier he was very experimental with his approach to effects and pushing the limits of what the guitar could do he talked about several times in interviews that i read with him he talked about taking apart radios and fooling around with any kind of electronic device just to see what it could do and he quickly became in demand as a session player and as a player in regular dance hall bands, he was a member of a band called the Galhads and famously a member of the Three Sons. I don't know if any of you are familiar with the Three Sons. I know my Three Sons, the show, no relation. The Three Sons is kind of a fun, I would say they're in the same kind of echelon as the Ventures. They're a trio and there's a tuba player rather than a bass player, uh, but they do standards in a really interesting, unique way. I have a lot of affection for the Three Sons. Growing up the son of a musical uh, provocateur, my father had a tuba and he was... Leonard Duke. He still has it. And he was a high school science teacher. He's notorious in our family circle for volunteering every spring because there was typically not a member of the brass section in the school concert band who would fill that tuba part. So he would volunteer to play that part. So. In the springtime at our house growing up, my father would have the tuba out and he would practice every day. He would play along with his records and, uh, you know, the Beatles and Rolling Stones and Frank Zappa and things like that. So it was very similar to listening to the Three Sons for me, you know, pop hits with the tuba accompaniment. 
brings a lot of affection for me. I'll just use this as an opportunity to say that uh, James's father is uh, such a mu- musical genius that he has the endorsement of Kalamazoo's Psycho Johnny. Oh, yeah. John- you know, Peter, I, I believe that you used to get guitar lessons from my father, and you actually gave him several cassettes that you were hoping he would help you learn the, the songs on. But those cassettes ended up at our house, and so you indirectly influenced me at a very young age. I I remember finding a cassette with a hand-drawn P Pixies logo. I didn't know the artist. It just had the P on it, and it was a mix of Pixies and Frank Black and the Catholics. (laughs) And I didn't know the artist for a good year, but I loved that tape so deeply, and I have you to thank for that. I remember about 10 years ago, you told me that story. We figured that out and that blew my mind. I did make that mix for him when I I took music lessons from him, music theory lessons at Kalamazoo Valley Community College. And uh, yeah, I was trying to scope him to Frank Black and the Pixies and ended up as a result steering you in that direction. (laughs) That's right. And here I am just as warped as all the rest of you. (laughs) Wild stuff. So Vince, he started a family in the 60s and at that point basically made a decision, hey, I'm done traveling, I'm done you know, playing in these nightclub bands, playing late with the Three Sons and all this. I'm going to go the studio route. And so he very quickly got a reputation, like I talked about a little bit about earlier, for being experimental, for bringing something very unique to sessions. And he may have played on more hit records than just about any other session musician that we know of. So he's on records like Hello, Dolly by Louis Armstrong. He's on The Sound of Silence, right? Frank Sinatra, uh, tons of singles from Frank Sinatra. The Four Seasons, The Love and Spoonful, Bobby Darin, the number of artists that he's worked with and the number of hit singles that he has lended a signature to is really impressive. I'm curious uh, if any of you had a chance to take a look at any of those lists and if any of those hits popped out at you you know the one that popped out for me the strongest was him doing some steely dan songs and then like having listened to this record a bunch and then also listening to a bunch of other songs that he played on and getting like kind of familiar with his playing style it just made so much more sense listening to tracks like do it again by steely dan be like oh yeah that's absolutely vincent bell i mean the watery effects are gone but such a great player oh and the one that really landed and made sense for me was green tambourine by the lemon pipers yes like everything we've said that totally makes sense that that would be him he's got a very distinct melodic style as well it's very prominent it's very punchy it's very simple at times it kind of reminds me of a thing that my dad used to say when I was playing guitar with him, which is, hey, play a line like Rudy from Fat Albert. Basically, I don't know if you're familiar with the Fat Albert cartoon, but Rudy's playing the bucket, right? It's got one string. So it's what he's what my dad was saying to me is play something punchy that really delivers the main melody line that other people can rally around for the song. And I think Vincent Bell does that really well he captures the essence of the song in terms of the melody he sprinkles a little fun on there he puts his effects on there but it's always really driven by his sense of what makes the song unique and uh and special i love it when a session player like a real pro like vincent bell will make these records where he's like secretly showing off 
you know, like the average listener isn't going to put on this record and think like, whoa, what a absolute master of his instrument. But the people who are musicians themselves, most of the time, hear something like this, they're just like, what the fuck is he doing? That is so good. Like, yeah, that's a, yeah. The, the beauty is in the simplicity. There's a great anecdote about Jimi Hendrix contacting Vincent Bell. Of course, you know, we were reading all of these Perry Como and all these kind of old time artists that he's playing on, but he's catching the attention of innovators like Jimi Hendrix and Hendrix contacted him and said, Hey, I'm a huge fan. I really love how you're experimenting with these sounds and how are you getting these Jimi Hendrix also notorious for going into the studio and trying to be as disruptive as possible with the electronics that were being used in the recording process. And Vincent Bell was totally enthralled by the conversation and ended up making him a custom left-handed version of his signature Dan Electro electric sitar, which Hendrix then went on to use in several recordings and used on stage many times. So even though they didn't have a close relationship, he was recognized by others who were trying to push the envelope of what was possible, albeit in a different direction with the guitar itself. It's that classic, your favorite musician's favorite musician kind of thing. Absolutely. Real, recognized, real. Mm-hmm. Well, what innovative track would you like to feature next to go further with Mr. Vinnie Bell? Let's do Anne, Anne of a Thousand Days. What do you guys think of that track? Man, it's like some spaghetti Western stuff going on there, but, you know, with that hot fuzz. Some kind of psychedelic-y romantic vibes mixed in, too. Basically everything you need. Yeah, it's a whole basket of stuff going on there. As you mentioned earlier, it's got layers. Depth. Yeah, the Twin Peaks... A connection really makes a lot of sense for me the more that I listen to this record because Twin Peaks for me is very much about it's about melodrama it's about relationships but it's also about secrets and it's about the way that people tell their own version of their story to themselves versus the truth of what it really is and so kind of bringing that sense of intrigue that soap opera 
sensibility and perspective to this record informs a lot of it for me. Also, Vincent Bell did the soundtrack for most of the major soap operas of the 70s, 80s, and 90s. So Yeah, I saw that. That was crazy. It's like every single one. Yeah, like- That's not going to happen, Rick. Not going to happen. <laughs> I think that was the bold and the beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, those soap opera vibes to- totally make sense with this. It, it does just have that weird line of it's kind of like reality, but it's just a little bit different. And you're kind of like, the more you listen to this record, I feel like, you know, we talked about, uh, was it Richie Havens, that sometimes if you listen to it too much, it starts to sound like you're tripping. I get the same feeling off this record. You kind of just start to disassociate a little bit when you play this back to back to back. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it reminds me very much of the flights I've taken, right? The airports, of course, are a a setting for reflection, transitions in your life, maybe big changes or uh, fleeting glimpses, reminders of what could have been. Maybe you're visiting old friends or going somewhere new. And so it's it's a great place for that sort of rumination, the great uh, mm-hmm. setting for the album. A little bit of nostalgia, a little bit of confusion, a little bit of uh, I don't know, guarded optimism. <laughs> it's got it all. And I want to be clear too, like I've, I've used a lot of terms that are very endearing and romantic, but this album is kind of deeply stupid as well. Like the fact <laughs> that this guitar effect is on every song just keeps getting funnier. Every time a new song starts, you st- you hear a glimmer of more familiar instrumentation, and then the damn guitar comes in with that same sound and does the same thing, and the piano replies to the guitar lines in the same way. But on every track, he's throwing new effects in. He throws the drums through different pedals. A, a few times, he throws the whole track through a phaser on the bridge, and you can tell he's having a lot of fun with it, and the, the humor is not... He's not taking himself too seriously either. Uh, You can totally uh, get that by looking at the back cover too, where he's got that portrait of him holding up the guitar and he's just cheesing. Like you can just tell he had a great time making this record, man. I don't know why you're conjuring up a deep confession from me. That's totally unrelated to this album. (laughs) Lay it on the line. Bring the melodrama. Okay. I love the 13th floor elevators, but sometimes when that electric jug comes in, making that same sound on every single song, I'm like, again, with the electric jug? (laughs) Okay, I got it out. No, that is a perfect analogy, though. Like, you can just slip into different modes of appreciation of this record, you know? You can appreciate it for the weirdness, for the pop elements, and then just how fucking funny it is sometimes. That's what's great about this. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, once again, a perfect allusion to Twin Peaks, of course, bringing in mm-hmm. surrealistic humor when you mean, need it the most. Definitely. It, it doesn't It doesn't try too hard to just give you one impression or one emotion. It knows that like you, you can have a lot of uh, feelings while listening to this and sometimes multiple feelings at the same time when listening to this. Absolutely. Yeah, I've really enjoyed listening to this record over the years. It was one of my first vinyl record purchases as a teenager, and it's really stayed in regular rotation in my collection just because it has that quality. It's so flexible. It's so silly. It's so romantic. It's a great thing to put on and just kind of vibe out to. 
it you know it's categorized as easy listening but uh like you said sean it's downright eerie and abrasive at times and so it, it does reward that kind of ambient ear right where you're tuning in and out as appropriate of course that's very fitting for our modern age and the way that we listen to music typically so it finds itself on the turntable frequently for me like i said it was gold a gold record so uh, Sean, I've actually seen copies of this. I saw this at the record store that you used to work at. It'll pop up here and there. But uh, one funny thing to to note, if you're a collector, if you're looking for this album, is that uh, Musicor, which was one of the labels that Vincent recorded a solo record for earlier in his career, when he had this big hit in the 70s, they re-released their earlier Vincent Bell album that he had recorded for them in 1965. And they came up with another album with an almost identical title and a similar cover. So it had most of the tracks from that earlier record, along with someone else's version of the airport love theme, of course, without the watery guitars. It was a different artist. And then they got the cover to look really similar and they released it. So they were sued and, and uh, the album was shelved. But uh, you can still find copies here and there. They were trying to cash in quickly. So make sure you're getting the authentic deal. Make sure that it says airport love theme by Vincent Bell on the back. And, you know, everything about the cover of this record and how it's presented is just like one of my favorite kinds of dollar bin digging where there's not a lot about this that would make you think like, oh, this is going to be a good record. It just, it looks extremely generic. You're going to find it right next to all the, right next to all the Johnny Mathis records, all the like cheesy smooth stuff and unless you know the name vincent bell because you've listened to this podcast you're just going to pass right over it but yeah so many i love finding those good extra cheap sleeper hits like this you know this is something you're really going to be able to find in thrift stores in dollar bins yeah when you see this stop in the name of airport love theme (laughs) wow beautiful peter (laughs) well sean i'm curious what did you find in the digital realm for our Spotify playlist that was comparable to this record? Did you make a list of 3,000 different songs he's on? <laughs> uh, close. I have uh, 27 tracks lined up for our dear listeners on this Spotify playlist. Spotify does not have very much stuff with Vincent Bell's name on it. It has his... Uh, his big electric sitar record, which I believe is just slightly more valuable than this one. Not too bad. But I, I started off with uh, Vincent Bell doing a version of the song Quiet Village that is most famously covered by... Anybody know? No. What was the name of it? I'm sorry. Quiet Village? No, no. It was an M. Night Shyamalan. <laughs> that was just the village. No, Martin Denny had a big hit with that song. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I put a few things on here that are similar to the aesthetics of this record. Some other kind of late sixties, early seventies lounge pop psychedelic cheese crossover. And then I also put a bunch of songs that Vincent Bell played on. You'll hear such artists as the brass ring, another really cool, very cheap band. Some of their stuff is cheesy. Some of it's really good, but it's all, all cheap and worth digging into the one Oh one strings orchestra, another thrift store staple. And then tracks like Steely Dan's do it again. Like we said that he played on Louis Armstrong's hello Dolly plus songs by the monkeys, peaches and herb, Melanie, Antonio Carlos Jobim. And then, uh, 
I was also really interested to hear that he played on Redbone's big hit, Come and Get Your Love. Oh, yeah. Ooh, you the that riff. song on the there. The riff. He wrote yeah. and performed. Legendary riff. That's the interesting thing about Ooh. Vincent Bell is that beyond just being a, a session player, he was often very influential in the actual hit itself. He, uh, one of the notes I saw, he played on Walk On By by Dion Warwick, and uh, he played the chick, chick, chick parts with his prototype wah pedal that was him adding that signature lick to the song interesting wow. another track of his that i think has a lot of similarities to this and one that i really like is remember walking in the sand by the shangri-las and that's another one with like tons of studio effects on it you know the drums have echo on it and most of the instruments have echo and it's got this just really cool sound and there's this guitar playing right in there the mccoys hang on sloopy we've mentioned that song and that band before and uh put some frankie valley in the four seasons a couple soul hits he played on as well by barbara lewis and others and then i ended with a ferrante and teicher teacher however it's pronounced version of the song midnight cowboy so you can find that whole playlist as well as all our other season two playlists on spotify just search i'd buy that podcast all one word and dig in discover some new slightly cheesy but very dope dollar bin treasures yeah and since we haven't in some time given people the direct line to us if you got anything you want to say to us about something we got wrong or something that we really got right you can always email us directly we check it pretty regularly uh you know almost as often as we checked our linkedin and uh, that is I'd buy that podcast at gmail.com. You can also slide in those DMs on Instagram and Facebook if you so desire. There's lots of ways to get at us and tell us what we're doing right, what we're doing wrong, what you'd like for us to do in the future. Guys, that was rude. You guys are plugging our pod before letting James plug his stuff. Oh, that's true. Like, 95% of our listeners have already like stopped listening to this episode now. Well, great. I don't have anything to plug. Nothing to plug. Check out this <laughs> pod, check out this podcast I'd buy that for a dollar. Oh, you do the art uh. for it, right? I do. I've been doing a little soundtrack work myself. Oh, okay. I was about to say you just put out a very nice Christmas log. Oh yeah, so I'm a collector of bargain records as as you all mentioned, I spent some time around Peter and Jeremy at the record store in the old days, leafing through the dollar bins. And um, I always like to put out a Christmas mix every year. If you check out, if you look me up on YouTube, James Duke is the name of my channel. You can find some uh, holiday Christmas cheer. I know it's at, uh, long after Christmas, but I'm always looking all year long. So if you're a, a weird, a weird collector like me and you have some feedback for me, please send it to me. Also, um, I have played in a band called The Grow Fangs. And if you are a Dungeons and Dragons fan, we've created an instrumental soundtrack for playing Dungeons and Dragons. So you can check that on YouTube as well, as well as most streaming services. I actually, I streamed that the last time we played Dungeons and Dragons. And I got to say, it really elevated the game. I, I can't recommend that band camp highly enough. Yeah, our listeners may not know, but 66% of the regular hosts are active D&D players. We'll Beautiful. let you figure out who isn't. <laughs> What's D&D? <laughs> <laughs>
James, I have to ask, since you mentioned the mixes that you make, did you do a Halloween one this year? I did. I didn't do a video for it. I was trying to film a jack-o'-lantern on my porch, but I didn't get a really satisfactory video and honestly was just a little behind. So it's on SoundCloud, but okay. I've been slacking a little bit. But I do like to have, you know, I like to have the the saccharine Christmas and I like to have sort of the foreboding kind of final girl Halloween mix as well. I should say last year, because when this airs, it will be 2021. Oh, I'm working on next year's already. Oh, okay. <laughs> so you will be doing one this year. So send me your song. <laughs> it might also be worth mentioning that James and I collaborated on an album that was released by another guest host of this program. Yeah, if you're looking for lo-fi Christmas beats, check out Hits from the Nog, courtesy of our friends at You Don't Deserve This Beautiful Art. That's right. Darko the Super was nice enough to release that music for us, and it's still up there for your streaming pleasures, both during Christmas time and otherwise. Hot damn, so much to plug. So much plugs. Well, do we have anything else we want to say on this episode of I'd Buy That for a Dollar? I want to thank James for coming on and just thank my co-hosts for being great co-hosts. Oh. And that's all. Thank Aww. you, Jeremy. Shucks. I want to thank James for coming on as well and and thank Jeremy for thanking me. Anytime, bud. <laughs> well, James, you are you have been a great supporter of this podcast, so we're really glad to have you on finally. You know, it's real charming in these in these trying times. It almost feels like this podcast is made just for me. It's a few of my very dear and close friends who I can't see in person. I'm I'm in Minneapolis now. We're all across the country, but once a week I get to to sit on the other side of the glass and listen to y'all hang out and play records for each other, and it, it's absolutely charming. Well, I'm I'm glad you think of it as that because this sometimes feels like one of the main things helping me hold it together in these trying times. So I'm glad we're able to spread a little bit of that joy to other people. This is getting weirdly heartfelt. We better cut it out. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm Jeremy Ruggles. I'm Peter Cook. I'm Sean Hartman. I'm James Duke. Oh, yeah. We should probably say what we're going out on. We got we we started to rush out of here because it was getting too weird and awkward. We've got... <laughs> We've got the theme from Darling Lily, not to be confused with the theme from Darling Nikki, as I mentioned here in Minneapolis. Yeah, this is a sensual record, but not that sensual, not Prince level. Mm -hmm.